Hola, mi gente. My name is Jessica Yanez, and I want you to join me for some wine and chisme. The Wine and Chisme podcast was created to amplify voices across communities of color, all while drinking a glass of wine. From wine talk, interviews, and recaps of all things pop culture, join me every Wednesday for the chisme. Please make sure to check out the Wine and Chisme podcast and other amazing podcasts as part of the Latina Podcasters Network. Did you know that you can experience many of the wines I taste here on the Wine and Cheese My Podcast? I'm sure you're aware of how important it is to me to highlight wine brands that are owned by those in the Latinx community. That is why the last Wednesday of each month, we host a virtual wine tasting featuring Latinx-owned wine brands. Whether you choose to partake in the tasting or just want to learn something about these vintners, if you enjoy wine, you will love these virtual events. Please visit thewineandcheesemetpodcast.com slash events for more information. Let's support our community and support these small vintners. Hola, hola, mi gente. I'm Jessica Yanez, and this is the Wine and Chisme Podcast podcast created to amplify voices and share the stories of people from BIPOC communities doing remarkable things, all while sipping on a glass of wine. So welcome to your new Wednesday. The Wine and Chisme Wednesday. Norma, I'm so, so happy. Like, we're finally doing this. We've been talking about this for how long now? A while. A hot minute, for sure. But we're doing it, and I'm super happy that we are, because, first of all, every time we met on We All Grow Latinas... Shout out to the We All Grow Latina team. Yes, through Amigas, through this whole pandemic. We met at the very beginning when everything started going virtual. And I remember... Anytime you would open your mouth, and not just then, but now, anytime you open your mouth, I'm like, I need to listen to what this woman has to say. Because it's always like so full of wisdom. And you always have when you have. Because <laughs> sometimes I'm all, what did I just say? What did you no, say? But, <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. Like, you don't say things just to say something. I feel like I have to do the podcast because I'm full of hot air. <laughs> I need a way to get stuff out. But when you say stuff, it really means something because you don't open your mouth just to hear yourself talk. And I think that we need more of that, including myself. Like I need to shut up more. And I think I've gotten better, obviously, especially doing the podcast. I think I've gotten a lot better in regards to that because you have to. How are you supposed to hear somebody's story if you're not hearing, truly hearing them? Right. But I'm super, super excited that we're finally doing this. But before we get into all of your chisme, we start with the wine, of course. So are you partaking today, Norma? I am not because I have a, tengo una cita right after this. And so I have to be super sober. So She has an appointment after this. I, I have an appointment. Who do, not, who do not speak Spanish. <laughs> I have an appointment after this and I... Um, so I will be I will be watching you enviously and waiting for seven o'clock to roll around when I can open a, a bottle of my own. You know, I have a, a back-to-back podcast today, recording podcast today. So oh, I didn't I'm realize gonna that. Be, 
I'm going to be lit after that. <laughs> so basically you're saying the next podcast is going to be off of a chain. <laughs> I mean, it is a filmmaker. So, you know, I think it just kind of goes. I will still be reasonable for you. But Thank on you, that I, one, I can't guarantee anything. <laughs> I appreciate it. I appreciate it. And apologies in advance for the next guest. <laughs> so today I am drinking Voces Cellars 2017 Pinot Noir. Um, I don't think I've had the Pinot Noir yet, but it's from the Russian River Valley. And it says, this wonderful Pinot Noir delivers aromas of red fruits and fresh berries. It is perfectly balanced with light acidity on the palate, and it expresses flavor of cherry, rhubarb, and a hint of vanilla bean. And there was only 55 cases produced. Oh. Yeah, so it's a very small winery. He doesn't even have a tasting room, but his wines are really good. And You know, we recently had one of our, you've been part of one of our tastings before. So much fun. Such a good time. Yes. I feel like, you know, we're just getting spoiled the more Mm. tastings that we do because a lot of these Latino-owned wine brands, they're really small. So I feel like they pay really close attention. I think the smaller wineries, they tend to do that, right? Because they're not on this really huge thing. And man, we're getting spoiled with the wine that we're drinking. Totally. So... Salud. 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 And Since I can't clink glasses, there's my sound it. effect. <laughs> my <laughs> virtual invisible glass. Mm. Between this podcast and the next podcast, that bottle might be gone. <laughs> I love it. Like I said, I'm super excited because, girl, you have like such, I only know part of your story from the last year and I've seen how you are the founder of Fabian Flores Publishing, but you, that's not always what you've done. And this is brand new. So I have not even heard the whole story and, but I've been wondering, like, since I heard that you were a lawyer, I was like, wait, how does she go from that to this? So I'm like legit, super duper excited to hear that story because honestly, I don't think you've shared it on any of our meetings. So before we get into that, like, or actually, no, I just want to, let's just jump into it because how do you go? And I'll ask other questions. We'll jump around. That's fine. But like legit, how do you go from practicing law to deciding, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. I think I want to go into publishing. How do you well, go from that one thing to the other? You know, it's not, it's interesting. That's a great question. It's not, it's not a linear journey, right? Life's not linear. And my path has not been straightforward by any stretch of the imagination. I went to law school because I wanted to change the world. As a first-gen daughter of farm workers, I saw a lot of injustices, and I really wanted to change the world. I wanted to make the world a better place for our community. So I ended up going to law school. Plus, I told I've plus I've been told that I'm bossy and uh, <laughs> and I, and I love reading. No, the truth is, I love reading. I love writing. I love research. I always have. So law school felt like a really good fit. And then I got to law school and very quickly realized that I didn't really appreciate the adversarial nature of a lot of the work. I started then working for nonprofits and I realized that just wasn't the area for me. It wasn't the way I was supposed to make an impact. So I left and then a lot of other things happened, right? So I took classes, I ended up having children, and then I decided to stay home. I had the great privilege of being able to take time away and stay at home with them and and raise them. And that was in that process also raised myself, 
right? Also really shift the way I was raised and the way I saw the world. And so that was a very key part of my life was the time that I took to be with my little people. From there, I realized that I loved mothering and motherhood as a sort of full-time gig wasn't feeding my soul the way I really wanted to be fed. And so I started exploring the more creative aspects of myself and, um, and I went back to writing. So I started writing and I was really focused on honing the craft, learning about it and just, you know, methodically writing that then led into one of my pieces being published by the New York times that then all led to this deep exploration of, of publishing. So the essay, I had a personal essay on colorism published in the New York Times, and it did really, really well. From that point, I then started to seriously consider writing a book. And I started exploring, you know, what my options were, what was out there. And I quickly realized that the publishing world was plagued with a lot of issues that I found extremely problematic from a writer's perspective, from a labor practice perspective. There were a lot of inequities that were, at least to me, unacceptable and glaring. And I quickly realized that really it wasn't about me or the book that I had once envisioned. It was this path was leading me towards wanting to be, wanting to change the system, not just for myself, but for our entire community. And so that's how I ended up segueing into publishing. I remember you talking about your article. Was that like right before or right at the beginning of the pandemic that it was published? It was published in May of 2019, but it did very well for the publication. So they ran it again in 2020. Okay. Then that's when I remember, because I remember you talking about it. I remember reading it. I should have read it again right before, like today, but I was just, like I said, when you have something to say, you're very thoughtful, you're very meticulous with your words, obviously, because you went to law school. But there's something that starts even before that, right? Like what, where did you actually grow up? And what was it that prompted you to even want to go to law school when you were growing up? Was it something that you saw, experienced? Like, can you share that? Unfortunately, I can't say that I saw attorneys that looked like me or that I sort of resonated with on any level. You know, I'm first gen. We were very much in the farm working community. And from farm working, my parents later moved on to become cannery workers, right? So we weren't. What area did you grow up in? On the Central Coast in okay, California. That's what I figured. Yeah. So we weren't really, our family and our community, we weren't really exposed. I'm so sorry. <laughs> They're doing construction. In Girl, the it's other... okay. Between construction okay. there, we have construction out of, outside my door and I live under the flight path of San Diego airport. So <laughs> we got it all. Okay. Um, I'm sorry about that. So as I was saying, I didn't grow up seeing a lot of examples of brown people, of Latinos, of Latinx folks doing really anything outside of, you know, the sort of labor industries. So I think that for me, I'm not quite sure at what point it started, but it, the one thing that sort of was the through line throughout my life was that I have always loved books. And my parents, even though they had very little formal education, 
always read. And so I feel like it just, it was in the air. We didn't have a lot of books because we were a very, we were poor. So we didn't have access to a lot of things. So the through line was that I always had access to books and examples of people reading books, right? So I think that 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 was sort of the starting point. At some point throughout, probably in elementary school, somebody said, you should go to law school. And the little seed was planted and sort of, you know, I began saying that and actively working towards that end. So how old do you think you were when somebody, like you're in elementary school, you said? Oh yeah, I was very young. I mean, I think that was my first thing that I wanted to do when I was in elementary school was be a lawyer because like you, people said I was bossy and I liked to argue with people. I was, if yeah. I felt like something wasn't right, I would argue until my face turned blue. Right. So I, I get see, it. We get along, we get along for a reason. <laughs> That's right. We're both strong-willed. Yes, That's just all sure. it is. Mm-hmm. So once you got into like it's high school time, you still have this plant Did you start figuring out like, okay, I'm choosing this college because it has this program so I can go to this law school? Like, what was your thought process? Because like I said, I didn't know you then, but I can see you still being very meticulous and very decisive in regards to like planting your, like how your route was going to go. You know, I wish I had a different answer for you, but the the real achievement is that, um, You know, I was very fortunate to have been offered almost a full ride to the college that I went to. And that's why I went, because I couldn't afford to go to school otherwise. And so what college did you end up going to? I went to Vassar College on the East Coast. So it's a small liberal arts college. They gave me almost a full ride and that's why I went. But that's awesome. I think we actually I don't think that we forget because I couldn't afford to go to college. In fact, when my when I even went to community college, my parents check bounced and I had to drop out until I could go back as an adult and still take out loans because it was still expensive. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, so come on, let's get these loans canceled. I know. Right. Don't get me wrong. I got I took out loans. But and when I think about it now, I think wow, I got almost a full ride and I still couldn't afford to go, right? I still had to take out loans. Like that's the type of financial situation that my family and I had. And so many people that come from communities of color, actually not even just that, just people like, it should not matter what your color is or what your socioeconomic status is because socioeconomic status affects everybody. Exactly. If you want to pursue a higher education, there ha- we have to find a better way to allow kids to pursue that without starting their professional life in debt. A hundred percent. I think that it made such a difference. I mean, well, my money story affected a lot of the decisions I have made for most of my life, right? So even though I didn't graduate from college with a ton of debt, it still felt like it was a ton of debt at the time. And it still dictated in my mind what I could and could not do, right? So I um, had lots of friends who had financial, emotional support after college, right? Trust funds. Like all of a sudden you go to a school like Vassar and I was exposed to a whole array of different socioeconomic realities. Most of them much more privileged and affluent than my own. And for me, that sort of like my money story still dictated my choice of 
post-college work, which is immediately get a job and immediately trying to get a job in a law firm and, um, and make as much money so that I can, one, pay to live in New York City, pay my loans off, save money or try to save money so that I can apply to law school, right? So it was the reality of not having a financial safety network is real. You know, it really shaped a lot of the decisions that I made, including ultimately going to law school. Like I felt in my early 20s that I didn't have a choice, that I needed to get a a job that would be secure and that would ultimately help position me to make enough money to be able to take care of myself and to take care of my family. Wow. How many people have to live every day thinking that exact same thing? Yeah. I have to so do many this because I have to do this. I have to do this because, yeah. but then in the last year, we found out that there's, there's no such thing as a secure job anymore. Right. We think Absolutely. we, because my parents, the same thing, they wanted all of us to, to have a secure job and to have this and have that. And I'm very, very fortunate that I did not lose my job and it's giving me more time to do stuff with the podcast. However, there's so many people that didn't have that luxury and that yeah. lost their job and they think their job is secure. And then we find out something happens and no, there's no such thing as a true secure job. I think each generation has experienced less security and less security because it's very few and far between. I think there's such things as pensions anymore. Yeah, and, I think it's very rare. Yeah, and there's not even every job offers a 401k or something like that. We're, we don't learn about these things in, in school of money management, of retirement, and I'm sorry, like I would have rather, instead of taking math, regular math class, I would have rather l- learn something like that. Learn that- about compounding, learn about interest, learn about, you know, debt ratios and all of these other concepts that are critical to shifting our money stories and really, really empowering ourselves, right? Like I think that that's the, uh, that is one of the ways in which our current educational system fails our children and particularly our children who are financially, who come from a socioeconomic situation that is less, uh, less affluent and, and less privileged, right? Because I feel like we, we as a society could be really providing tools that will really help empower and, and we don't in many ways. Absolutely. I want to go back to when you said when you were at Vassar, the type of people that were there. To be perfectly honest, when I think of most East Coast schools, with the exception of maybe Columbia and NYU, I don't think of a diverse student body. So am I correct in making that type of assumption with Vassar as well? Or was it diverse? And what was your experience being a brown girl in a school like that? When I was at Vassar, I don't think it was very diverse. I think maybe there were like five Mexicans or, you know, five Mexican-Americans. There were other Latinos, but I do remember thinking there were five at any point in the four years, right? Not five in our class. I think there were five of us throughout the entire student body. I think that was the case like for my first year. I think that after my first year, there were a couple more Chicanos, Latinos from the Southwest and, and the West Coast, but there weren't, there weren't a lot of Latinos to begin with. There were some Boricua, some Dominicans, but you know, not a whole, there was not a lot of diversity. There were very, very few brown and black students. Did that affect the way that you approached? I know this might sound like a weird question, but 
literally, this is just how it's coming to me. Did that affect the way that you approached how you interacted with other people and how you studied or did like, was it something because you knew that there was very few, you were like, I have to work that much harder because I need to make sure I hit this goal that I've set for myself? Or were you just like blinders on? I still have my focus. It does like this. I'm not letting this affect me. And I'm just going for what I want to go for. So I'm a very friendly person by nature. So I had a lot of white friends. I also had a lot of friends that were of color. And I think that the lack of diversity absolutely affected my experience. And it also allowed me to create really, really powerful and deep connections with other students of color, friends that I still text with, talk to on almost on a daily basis now, right? I will say that while it was at times very disheartening to be one of the only, um, it was just another reality that I had to contend with. The same way that not being able to pay for my books until, you know, the financial aid check came through was like another way, which is another reality that I had to deal with. I didn't even, I was in such survival mode that I didn't have the time or the awareness to process the trauma that that was taking place in real life because of the lack of numbers. And then when you think about it, you say you you were looking for a job in New York City and then you're the real life of walking out of that, walking out of that situation into a place where you're one of the only people of color to the diversity of what New York City is. I'm sure it was, it could also be overwhelming because you're almost in this secluded place for so long. And then you just step out and you're like, oh my gosh, this is so awesome. Yes and no, because I was working for mid-sized to large, very corporate law firms. And so I worked as a paralegal for a couple of years after law school. And the environment, and especially the corporate environment, it was probably whiter than my college days. You know, like it, there is not, I think the only other Latinas that worked at the same law firm that I worked at were support staff. So they worked either in as secretaries or they worked, oh, actually we were all support staff because I was a paralegal. So I was also in a support, in a supporting role. I don't think I came across any Latinx attorneys while I was working in New York. Oh, wow. That's crazy. I get it. But it also, because I even think of going to school just in generally, and I don't remember very many teachers that were Latino. Yeah. And it starts there, right? Like it starts in regards to who we see, who's teaching us, who's all of these different things. And every level, if you're not seeing it, you're either, I feel like you're either thinking one of two things. Like I have to be one of the first ones to do this. Like, I'm going to break this barrier or how can I do this? I've never seen anybody else do it. I feel like people end up falling in one of the two camps. I don't know how the law student thing works. Do you apply for law school and go directly from undergrad into law school or do you you have to wait or what was your journey? So you can do anything that you want, right? Some people go straight out of undergrad. I didn't feel like I had the bandwidth to go straight out of undergrad. And I also didn't have the resources. So for me, again, my money story was I really need to make money, save money so that I can then take my next step, right? So for me, I took several years off. And during that time, I was living in in the city and working and gaining experience, right? Because I, the time that I spent in law firms in New York, 
really made me see that I didn't want to be in a corporate setting. I didn't want to be working with clients that were, you know, billion dollar companies. It just wasn't appealing to me. It was soul crushing. And so that actually the time that I spent in those environments really helped to shape what I wanted to do next, which is I decided to apply to law school convinced that I wanted to be in the public sector, that I wanted to be working for nonprofits with the community and shaping, you know, making a difference in the real world, like with clients that looked and sounded very similar to what I had grown up with. So when you go to law school, you graduate law school and you know that you want to go into the public sector, you know, you don't want to be in corporate law. Was it mostly nonprofits that you worked with? Mm -hmm. What type of nonprofits did you work with? And what was the point where you were just like, I don't want to do this anymore? Oh, I didn't want to do it my first year of law school. Like I went to my my 1L first semester. I was kind of like, oh, this is not for me. Like this is, I am not supposed to be here. Like really, it's just not, it's not for me. And then the part of me that was like, wait, you're the first person in your family to get this far you can't quit. At that time, I think uh, the percentage of, I'm not sure if it was Latina, it was probably, I can't remember, but I would remember, vividly remember being at the doctor's office and looking through a magazine, there was an ad and it was from the Bar Association ad. And it basically said the percentage of Latinos in the law was 1% at the time. And that, like I cut it, I ripped it, and brought it I'll put it in my pocket. And that sort of became my inspiration, right? It it was like the motivate, it was part of the motivation. Anytime that I was feeling like, oh, this job or, oh, what am I doing? I would look at that little piece of paper and I had that piece of paper in a wallet with me throughout my entire law school days. But I got to law school and that first semester, I quickly realized that it was not the kind of environment where I was going to thrive, that I really wasn't going to be very happy doing this. And then as I started working. So like, I knew very early on that it wasn't, it wasn't a good fit. And the part of me that is stubborn and likes to see things through to the end was just kind of like, what's me modo girl, like you're here. And, you know, then thinking about like, wow, my gosh, all the privilege, like what, what's my family going to say? What am I going to do if I don't do this? Like I've been planning to, to be a lawyer my whole life. I don't even know what it would. I think I just lacked the confidence, the self-awareness to say, okay, well, you know what? turns out I don't want to do this, right? So I didn't walk away. I went through the... <laughs> I went you through just the kept going. You're like, well, I'm yeah, here. I got to do it. I did it. Right. So the positions that I held while I was in law school and then after law school, it, it all pointed. I was just not happy. Did and you formally really, ever take the bar? Oh, yeah. No. no so yeah. you were a practicing I, I, attorney. Oh, you still are licensed. Are you still, you're still licensed? You still keep up with everything. Yeah. Yes, girl. I am not going to let go of that license ever, (laughs) ever. Okay. And I, like, I write my check out to the, you know, the bar association every year. Um, but no way I am not, I worked too hard to to not, to like, just let it, to go inactive basically. But I think that what happened was there was a point very early on because of my paralegal experience in New York my first summer as a law student, I was able to get a a position in an amazing nonprofit and I was representing a client and I realized we won the case. I won the case and I realized that what I had secured for this person 
wasn't actually going to make a difference in their world. There was still a part of their life that would never really change, or the odds were very low that anything were that anything was going to change because the systems that were created weren't created with this person in mind. And that was incredibly devastating for me. And understanding that even though I was making small change, the reality was still going to be the same tomorrow was a devastating understanding. Like when I had that epiphany, it became much harder for me to be in, in, in those types of environments. And I think there was also a component of, you know, to be confronted with people that looked like me, that looked like my parents, that spoke like my parents, that had the same generational, intergenerational trauma as my family, as my parents, it really, really made me sad. And it made me reconsider how I could help, how I could change, how I could be of service. Wow. I love that. I mean, I feel very kindred with you in regards to that because I felt like, you know, starting the podcast in in regards to wanting to amplify all of these stories, right? Because that's what you want to do. You want to amplify stories and and everything. The way we're doing it is just a little bit different, but also you know, realizing that how much our community is involved in the wine industry and all of the things that we do, yet people don't know that we also, we're we're not just working in the fields and not just mm-hmm. making this possible, but there are, you know, these Latino-owned wine brands and really trying to highlight that. And you're pivoting all of this into sharing stories with authors that come from communities of color to really be able to share their stories so they can be amplified. So our stories can continue to be told and in different ways, because I think, please keep me honest. The last time that I had looked at it, I think it's what less than 1% of authors that are published come from the Latino community, something like that. So let, let me just back up and say that I think that entering into the publishing world as an outsider is a very unique position because mm-hmm. I can look at the industry and say, this is how I would do it different. And plus, and I'm sure your law degree comes in handy too when you're looking at all of these different things because you are very analytical. And so you're looking at all of these different things. I think that being an outsider in this case really gives me a advantage because I can say, okay, why are we doing it this way? Why is it that the industry is so opaque? Why is it that there are so many barriers to entry? Why is it that there are so few books by Latinx for Latinx with nuanced, dynamic stories, right? So I can see that. So I see my experiences, even though they're very diverse, I see them as all feeding into and really setting myself up to be able to create this and to be able to execute it. So I think that the law degree, the time mothering, the time, you know, because mothering, mothering is all about supporting and community. And I think all of those experiences combined have really allowed me to step into this role with a very expansive and open perspective, which is, I think, exactly what you need when you're trying to reimagine the landscape. I don't even know what to say. (laughs) Because it's true. Like, it's so, everything that you're saying is so true. And to come in it from an outsider's perspective, thinking, oh, this and that, it gives you an advantage in regards to perspective. 
but it also gives you a disadvantage in regards to you're still learning this industry. You're still figuring it out. I mean, I remember when you said, this is what I decided to do. Literally, I remember when you said that, which is so awesome that I get to now interview you as you're now looking for authors, looking for these types of things. Where did the name even come? Because it's Fabian Flores Publishing. Where did the where does that name come from and what does that mean to you? Because obviously it, it means something to you. I love this question. Uh, so Fabian is my family name, right? So it is my maiden name. And it's very, to me, the inclusion of that name in the company, it really circles back to the idea of community, of ancestry, of heritage, of of lineage and really owning that and really being proud of that. So that was sort of like a no-brainer for me. And then Flores is actually the last name. I have three muses. And interestingly enough, they all have the last name Flores. They're not related. I don't think they know each other. And I'm a sucker for alliteration. So I was like, perfect. I love it. I guess Yanyes doesn't fit in there, whatever. No. <laughs> it's because I met you later, girl. Yeah, next time, next time. <laughs> For the next venture. <laughs> no, that's so cool that they don't even know each other, but they just happen to have the same last name. But yeah, you know, it's fascinating. So my muses are connected by their strength. They have so many similarities, even though they're wildly different humans. They're connected, in my opinion, through their strength, their grace, their beauty, their courage their leadership. And those to me are all qualities that I aspire to cultivate in myself and qualities that I think that as a company, if we can embody half a quarter of what these muses create and project and and accomplish in the world, I think that we're going to be okay. Do they know that they are part of this? I don't know, actually. I don't think so. We haven't had the conversation. I mean, I see a wine night with your Flores people and you're <laughs> like, hey, guess what? I just need you guys to know. Yeah, with your muses. I'm trying to think of like a good good name for that. Muse night. <laughs> Morning mimosas with your muses. Oh! <laughs> I'm all right. I'll give you credit, girl. <laughs> <laughs> just off the top of my head. I love it. <laughs> give me something wine related. I'll figure it out. <laughs> I love it. One thing that I also like and that distinguishes you is that there are other Latina-owned publishing companies, but they mostly focus on children's books. Mm -hmm. You're not focusing on children's books. You're focusing on on stories that, or actually, why don't you tell me? Because I don't know, like, you tell me what exactly (laughs) are you focusing on when it comes to the types of authors and the types of material that you want to include with Fabian Flores Publishing? Yeah, so the goal for Fabian Flores is to really be a companion of readers and writers at different stages in their journeys, right? So we seek to publish children's books, adult books. We want to be the company that you begin reading when you're in diapers and you continue reading until you are 90, right? We want to be with you the entire journey because... We believe that at every phase in a reader's life, 
You need to have books that are reflective of your experience. You need to be able to see yourself in books at every stage in your development. And that's really, that's really key. That's what I wish I had. I wish I had books when I was a young kid that reflected my experience with characters that looked somewhat similar to me, right? And I think that that continues to be the same now. So really the goal is to be able to produce works that are treasured by the reader, whether you're five months or 85 years old. And just as clarification, this, you're not a self-publishing house, right? You're no, no, publishing no. House. We work within the traditional publishing industry. Because I think there's so many places that are self-publishing. So I want to make sure that we're clear in regards to that. Yeah. And, I, you know, look, I think that I'm not elitist in that sense. I think that self-publishing is important. I think it has an important role to play in our community and in other communities. I think that for too long, the traditional publishing industry has been so exclusive and so... Um, hyper-focused in producing a very narrow understanding of what books can be like. And I understand why self-publishing is needed, right? I think it's critical. That's not the business model that we are working in. There's somebody out there that was like, I have a story, but I don't know where to start. I have a story that I think needs to be told, but I'm not the greatest writer, but they feel like it's an important story that needs to be shared. How are you working with those people? How are you cultivating and finding your authors to work with? So I think that it's it's really important to always be working on your craft, right? So if you have the story, write it down. Or if you're struggling with the writing part, speak it out and then write it out and then sort of go back to it, right? One of the things that I think that the industry as a whole could do so much better in is providing information, right? Like I think it's very difficult for a person who is just starting out to have access to the types of tools and information that will help them improve their craft and will help them be able to tell their story in a more compelling and dynamic way. And so as a company, one of the things that we really want to be able to provide are resources for free that any writer, any storyteller can tap into and, and to use. Because ultimately, as a startup independent publisher, we are not going to be able to publish all the books that we want to publish, all the books that deserve to be published. It's unrealistic, right? However, what we can do is we can help those people that are interested in sharing their stories in making sure that they're able to tell their stories in a way that perhaps another publisher will be able to publish. Right? So when you talk to your kids about what you're doing now, I'm sure there's a lesson that you want them to learn as well. But how are you telling them what you're doing with the publishing company? And what do you hope that they get from this experience watching you create this company from nothing? So my kids are also readers, right? They were, I feel like they were born with a book in their hand and uh, they have been a part of this process from day one. They helped me um, select the logo. They helped me come, come up with the name. In fact, one of my children was helping me edit a newsletter a few minutes ago, you know, before we got on this call. They are actively involved in a lot of the the day-to-day -day functionings, right? Because especially during COVID, I mean, we've all been home. So they have seen this company go from a idea to actually you know, having a website and, and having all of these other components of the business really be alive. 
they are super excited and they're my biggest cheerleaders. They're really supportive. And I think that they really understand that there is a commitment to empowering, a commitment to being a change agent. And that's the way I talk to them about it. So startup life has lots of long hours and there are many times where they're just like, mommy, mommy. And, you know, many times where I have to say, mommy's not available right now. I give me 30 minutes, give me 10 minutes to finish this. Or, and they've learned to be patient. And also I think that they, they get excited when I have a win, they have a win. And, and it's beautiful to be able to share that with them. That's so awesome. I'm sure. Now, are they going to help you choose children's manuscripts? Will maybe. they be, will they be mean, your tastemakers? Maybe. Uh, you know, it's interesting to think about it because they are voracious readers. They go through books like nobody's business and they have lots of opinions. They will tell me, oh, I don't like that one. Or, you know, they gravitate towards certain books and they're able to articulate why they like those books. And I think that that's very, I mean, I have market research in the, in the other room. <laughs> so it is, uh, I can definitely see them you know, wanting to look at some of the manuscripts and piping in. When I asked you to describe your word, your life in one word, you said fairy tale. Mm. Why did you say fairy tale? I think that the fairy tale is an apt reflection for my life because I've gone through a lot of ups and I've gone through a lot of downs and I love a fairy tale story ending. And I think that that's what I'm working towards. I'm working towards my own fairy tale, not a per, not. And, and by that, I don't mean some sort of like Disney version of perfect or easy to digest, but I mean, it's magical and I love that magic. And sometimes there are lots of tears and sometimes there is loss and sometimes there is a lot of struggle. But I think that if I can continue to look at my life through a lens of magic, through a lens of awe, then it's going to all be okay. I told you Norma does not say anything lightly. (laughs) (laughs) I said that from the beginning. You don't say anything lightly. You're very deliberate with your words. And yeah, for sure. Um, I don't know if your parents are still with us or not, but if they are, how do they feel about this endeavor that you're going through? My father is no longer here. And my mother, my mother is fascinated by the idea. And also it's, I think, very difficult for her to kind of grasp. I think in part it, because I don't have physical books to show her. I think that once I have a physical book and I'm like, mira mami, eso es lo que nosotros estamos haciendo. You know, like, (laughs) totally, totally. I think that there is, given her age and given her generation, there's just a little bit of, she's cheering me on. And I think that there is some difficulty grasping exactly what I'm doing. Like she has said, (laughs) So her mom was asking if she works for the newspaper and she's saying, no, she does not work for the newspaper. (laughs) You know, so she'll, she'll make comments that will make me think, I don't know if she really gets what I'm trying to do. And I'm okay with it. You know, I think that (laughs) until I have the books in hand and I can show her and read until we can read them together Mm -hmm. until she's sitting down with, you know, my children reading her the books or you know until she's reading them on her own I think that it will it will be somewhat 
it's and you'll have something tangible, which is awesome yes. because like working in <laughs> PR, my parents have zero idea and they're younger. They're the younger of the baby boomers. Yeah. And when I tell them I work in public relations, they have zero idea what that means. But doing the podcast, it's something they can actually listen to. Yeah. So when people ask my parents what I do, oh, she has a podcast. They don't like nothing <laughs> about, even though they, I don't think they've ever listened to a single episode. Oh, come on. Yeah. No. They, escuchen este. Escuchen este. <laughs> I have it set up so they can listen to it anytime they want. Like I show them how to do mm, it. Yeah. But I don't think they've ever gone on there. But it's funny because that's what they say I do. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, she doesn't work in public relations because public relations is so intangible yep. to people that don't work with it or know what it is. But they know what they know that they can go and listen to the podcast and other people can go and listen to it. So no, I don't do public relations. I do a <laughs> podcast. <laughs> exactly. So before I ask you the last couple of things, I want to make sure that I give you the opportunity to share anything else that maybe I have left out or I forgot or anything like that, that you would like to share before we start closing out. I'm super excited to share that Fabian Flores will be opening the submissions window and will be accepting manuscripts in early June and will be accepting manuscripts through August 1st. And we are just so excited to be reading work and we're hoping to find some dynamic and compelling, authentic stories that haven't been told that are as robust and just juicy as our multi, like our multi-layered and multifaceted existence in this country. And so I'm, I'm so excited that we are at this point where we accepting submissions. I'm so excited for you. So if people want to submit something, how can they do that? They can go to our website, fabianfloresspublishing.com. And uh, so the link isn't live yet, but it will be live in early June. And by the time this releases, the link will be live. Ah, andale, there you go. The link is live now. (laughs) Correct. Don't waste time. (laughs) Run, don't walk. Let your fingers do (laughs) the running right now. (laughs) And what are your other social handles that people can reach you? We are most active on Instagram and it's uh, Fabian Fotis Publishing. Norma, I love you so much. I really, really do. Like, I know we have been talking about that. Literally, we've been talking about this probably for six months, getting you on the podcast. I know. And it was like, when I'm closer, when I close, and I was just like, whenever you're ready, let me know. And then finally you messaged me and you're like, okay, I'm ready. And I was like, yeah, I'm so excited. It's interesting because I think it's so tunnel vision in this needs to be done. This needs to be done. This needs to be done. And I didn't feel like I was at a point where I was ready to really start talking about what are we doing? What are we building? And and for a lot of months, it didn't feel real because even though I was working every single day on some aspect of the company, uh, it still hadn't gotten to the point where I was feeling like I could really sort of begin to share that. And we're still at a very, very young phase in, in the company, it, you know, we're still trying to figure things out. We're still trying to develop systems. We're still trying to envision the best way forward. And I feel like we are also at the stage where I can really start talking about what we're trying to do, how we're trying to shift the industry. So I appreciate you believing in me, you know, so many months ago. And, and I really am so excited that we, 
that we are here. I am so excited. I cannot wait for us to be able to share a glass of wine together in person. Yeah. Because it's coming. (laughs) I know. I, you know, we've met so many amazing women through We All Grow. Like truly, truly. And I have appreciated it. I think I appreciate it in such a different way. I think we all appreciate it in such a different way because even if there was just in-person events, there's still a good chance that we may have not met at an in-person event. And the fact that we've truly been able to like grow a friendship and a support system over this last, what, 15 months? Gosh, has it been that long? (laughs) Girl, right? I just, I can't even say how much I appreciate it. And I can't say how much I appreciate you because like I said, you're always so thoughtful when I was going through all of the things start, like literally pandemic happened three weeks after I launched the podcast and having so many people from the, we all grow community, even believe in me. And when I was starting this, the wine tastings and starting all of these things, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. (laughs) And there is such beauty in that, right? There is such beauty in just saying, I don't know, and I'm going to learn and I'm going to figure it out. And I have an idea and I'm pretty sure that when I get to a point where I can reflect on it, it's going to look different. My journey is going to be and look different than what I had envisioned it. And how exciting and how privileged to be able to do that. You know, I it's not lost on me that most of my experience as a child and even in my early 20s was all about survival and so to be in a place where we can say yeah let's try it let's do it let's build something different let's see where we end up so powerful and that's really rad you know that's so cool (laughs) it is it is and you know that your authors have a place here for me when they have a they have a space to share their work Thank you. You always have a space here, Norma. I mean, I like I said, I appreciate you so much. Thank you. The last question we always go with. <laughs> what is your favorite type of wine, red, white, or rosé, or sparkling, and what kind? Like, do you have a specific type that you like? Yeah, you know, my relationship with wine has really shifted. When I was in my 20s, I loved big, bold cabs. I mean, that's all I would drink. And then as I got older, all of the reds really, like the tannins really started messing with my sinuses. So now I'm at the point where really I can do, so I love a, a beautiful Beaujolais, which is mm. probably as red as I can go these days. I love a, you know, a yummy Pinot, a Chardonnay, um, a Vanier. Like, I, I mean, there's... <laughs> Beaujolais are so, I, I'm a white and Beaujolais, Beaujolais is, is insane. Like <laughs> so for those who do not know, like Beaujolais is basically the lightest red that right. there it's is. It's like grapefruit juice, basically. <laughs> no, I don't like grapefruit. No, no, well, okay. But I mean, it's a very <laughs> light, it's a very light summer drink. Yeah. You can still drink it for summertime and everything. And oh my gosh, it's like, cause I think a lot of people think of Pinot Noir and Pinot Noir is like medium red. It's not mm-hmm. too heavy. It's not that light though, but a Beaujolais is, yeah, I like a good Beaujolais. Look, I enjoy wine. Um, and these days, given my sinuses, I really, I tend to lean towards whites, whites, champagne, or Beaujolais. There you go, Norma. Again, 
Otra vez, otra vez. I know I've said it like three, four, five, six times already. Thank you so much. You are truly, truly just such a remarkable woman. And I appreciate you so much. And I'm so glad we had this chance because I got to know you more too. And I love those opportunities. I love when, I mean, I saw this whole journey start in regards to when you're like, I am, so I'm going to do publishing. (laughs) I'm going to do, you know, I'm starting a publishing house. And then now like launching it, ready to get submissions. I'm like, my mind is so blown in the best way possible. So you guys better go check out, go to FabianFloresPublishing.com, submit your manuscripts, follow her on social media, do all of the things. It will all be in the show notes as well, because you want to get in at the beginning before she gets way too overwhelmed and <laughs> she is too bougie for us. <laughs> oh, come on. Nunca, nunca. No, and I mean, I think that, look, what we're trying to do is we're trying to create a different paradigm. We are trying to center Latino, Latinx narratives by Latinx creatives because we understand that our stories have not been told adequately in the past, right? So we, what we're trying to do in a lot of ways is, is, um, is to change the conversation. And that starts by putting our community front and center. And that's what we choose to do. So, so, no so if that resonates needed. with you, <laughs> so if that resonates, then, you know, please check us out, tell a friend, buy a book when they come out. Buy one for your sister, buy one for your, <laughs> buy one for your friends. Support is basically what she's saying. So on that note, gracias everybody. Until next time. Gracias amiga. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Wine and Chisme podcast. For more information on today's guest, please see the show notes for links to websites and social media channels. You can check out all things Wine and Chisme on our website, thewineandchismepodcast.com. There, you will find the names of wines I drink each episode, as well as additional information on me, the podcast, and you can even apply to be a guest straight from there. You can also find us on social media at The Wine and Chisme on Instagram and at The Wine and Chisme Podcast on Facebook. Remember, if you want to hear more Wine and Chisme, please subscribe, rate, and review. Five-star ratings are appreciated, and those positive reviews are appreciated even